I found the letter right away. I knew it existed, and when I went to look for it, it was right where I would have put it. A plain white business envelope with the blue pattern on the inside, and my name and Dad's distinctive penmanship on the front. It took me a few days to be comfortable enough to even open it. I had taken the letter back with me to New York, and I put it in my dresser drawer, the top of which is covered in crystals, and the dust that accumulates around crystals, because there's so many that it's a chore to dust. My dad hated dust. I both wanted to read that letter and never read that letter. But it came to be, after a generous pour of whiskey one night, and being of the mind that I better get on with things, I took the letter into my meditation room slash office, lit a candle, put on a mournful playlist, and read it. My dad's handwritten message to me read, Dear Dale, this is probably a good time to let you know about your half-brother. <laughs> okay, well, to be clear, uh, I do not have a half-brother. This was his way of breaking the ice, uh, even from the afterlife, and it worked. Any tears built up came out mixed with a laugh. I knew I could get through this. And the rest of the letter contained no startling revelations or things I hadn't talked with him about in years prior. I knew of his depression. I hadn't known how completely the hold of his social anxiety had on him or how he felt about it. But that made sense to me. I could understand why he was so rooted in one place, why he busied himself with so many artistic pursuits, why he would wait until the very last minute to get ready for something he really didn't want to go to. And after reading that letter and sitting with my experience of him now that he's gone, I find myself trying to gauge how big that impulse to retreat is in me. Moments where I pull back or say no or stay inside for days. The pandemic has accelerated some of those tendencies, but are they inescapable? Is that a trait I carry with me that will somehow erupt into being again or pull me under in similar dark episodes? Or is my fate something different? How our genes define us, how a lineage can point to the future, and how our ancestors guide us or disappoint us this week. When we trace our family tree all the way back to the source, the pulsing energy that is the deep night. Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm humbled and grateful to be with you tonight, signing on as your host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. It turns out the Gowanus would probably rather not divulge much about its past— dug by enslaved labor to create a channel to power the gristmills of the Dutch settlers, given a name stolen from an indigenous Canarsie chieftain, poisoned by this country's promise of prosperity at any cost. Now that once tranquil Tideland is being transformed once more with a similar capitalist impulse. No wonder it gives off such a stench. You smell that? <laughs> yeah, that's America. Rather than dredge it or mask it, we should sit with it, understand it, and then probably do something about it, because, yuck, you're gonna want to shower after that. 
Writer Maud Newton has explored her own family history and, in doing so, given us all an example of ways to interrogate our past to better comprehend the present. Maud Newton is a writer and critic. Her first book, Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation, is out now and has already been named one of Esquire's best books of 2022. Praised in a starred Kirkus review as exhaustively researched, engagingly presented, and glowing with intelligence and honesty, and described by Publishers Weekly as a marvel, absorbing, addictive, informative. Maud has written personal essays, cultural criticism, and fiction. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, Granta, Book Forum, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Curb, the Paris Review, Daily, and many other publications and anthologies. I am thankful to the folks at Penguin Random House for helping to connect us, and oh, what a connection we had. Let's go now to my conversation with Maud Newton. Maud Newton, welcome to the Deep Night. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I appreciate that little uh, hesitancy <laughs> in your voice, but we're going to have a great time. Uh, <laughs> I'm so honored to have you on, Maud. Uh, I've just finished your book, Ancestor Trouble. Um, are you enjoying having it out in the world? Uh, it, does it is that a source of some anxiety for being so vulnerable and open? I am very happy that it's out in the world. And it is, of course, a little bit of a source of anxiety having it out in the world because of the vulnerability. Well, uh, it, 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 uh, putting all your family uh, business out there, <laughs> I imagine, uh, would, would be a cause for uh, some uh, sleepless nights, perhaps. Well, luckily, I've been sleeping really well. Um, oh, and I think, you know, um, I don't mean to sound hokey, but because I wrote it in the most open hearted way that I could, you know, I don't sort of have the kind of qualms that I might have had if it was a score settling kind of book. Right. I appreciate that. Well, I found your work uh, especially timely for me because the as uh, the things that get passed down physically and otherwise is very much on my mind. Uh, my father passed in November. And so now with both parents gone, I'm in this fresh moment of trying to uh, understand who I am. And are there clues in the boxes of photos in the attic? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can imagine that I'm First of all, I'm really sorry about that. And and I just think that's a, a universal human question and predicament. And I also believe that a lot of us are really finding our way to these questions in new ways in recent years. Yes. And there's many more tools available to us, I suppose, now than, than perhaps there were. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, between the DNA sites and, you know, a sort of return to some spiritual inquiries around this and, of course, psychological inquiries. Um, yeah, I think people are really trying to approach this in a lot of different ways. 
Well, it all coincides for me with some efforts that my uncle is making to consolidate our family history to digitize them. And I'm looking at the photos and I'm trying to get a sense of what has come before and, and asking questions, which I think is so key, and all the questions I wish I had asked as a young person. Uh, it's, it's so disheartening sometimes when you realize how many uh, answers are now gone and how many questions we should have asked. That is so true. Um, and it, yeah, I think even for those of us who did ask a lot of questions, and I'm going to guess you were, you were one of those people, there are always questions that occur to us later, or maybe we were hesitant to ask at the time for fear of causing offense or asking someone to delve too deeply into painful things. And yeah, I definitely, especially with my um, Texan granny, my mother's mother, there are so many questions I wish that I had asked, even though I definitely had no shortage of questions for her when she was alive. Right. And it's, it's a sort of cruel part of aging <laughs> yeah. that, that we we grow our empathetic selves and our ability to understand what somebody else is going through and then ask questions and want to know more about that experience uh, as we age and that we just don't have that as young people always. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was definitely a kid who liked some old people, you know, not all <laughs> old people, but, but many old people. Um, but yeah, that sort of broadening that happens and that sort of, you know, sense of connectedness that, you know, tends to develop as we grow older. And then also the sense of how fleeting life is, uh, which is something you really can't appreciate when you're, when you're young. Yes, that's true. Um, well, when did your uh, interest in ancestry start and did you enter into it with that hope of resolution or was it merely a curiosity about your own being? Well, um, I do get into this in the book a bit. So, you know, my mom and her mother were, you know, these great Texan storytellers and they, their stories would build on each other. And so when I was growing up um, and then later when I got a little older, I learned that my mom's mother was supposedly married 13 times. Um, that his father had supposedly killed a man with a hay hook, um, that my grandmother's father was, she said, a communist um, in early 19th century Texas, which seemed improbable, but also knowing my family, all of this also seemed very possible. So I started... Um, just sort of randomly in the year 2000, typing some of these ancestors' names into a precursor of Google to see what would come up. And um, when I typed in my grandmother's mother's name, I found this tree that went back to Puritan, Massachusetts, to, um, you know, long before the Salem witch trials, but I had an ancestor who was accused of being a witch. And that was really um, 
shocking to me, both because that history had always seemed like something from textbooks um, and mm -hmm. because I thought my family on both sides was Southern. So it was that sort of like over the top, larger than life storytelling that really drew me in. Um, you know, and I, so I started digging into the marriages and the Hayhook story and, and all of that. <laughs> so it seems to me the lesson is if you're an older person, make sure you uh, tell some stories that have some real uh, juicy bits to them, some real stickiness. <laughs> Get the kids interested. <laughs> yeah. Get a little myth building going for people to then investigate as they, <laughs> as they accumulate in years. <laughs> yeah. Are you, do you find that that's the case for you as well, that there are stories like that that you have in your family? Oh, yes. Yes. There's, I think, a great tradition of the uh, oral history and passing things down and repeating them. And one word can trigger that story uh, <laughs> that you know you're going to hear. And sometimes, though, I'm finding I only remember a piece of it. So I'm happy to have this opportunity to go now where I'm really thinking about it and, and investigate. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we had a family tree in our house that goes back to 1633, tracing nine generations of folks back. And uh, <clears throat> the thing is, when you look at it, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of Sarah's and Abel's, you know, yeah. and it can become very quickly overwhelming um, to even think about entering into that. So I have hesitated <laughs> instead gravitating towards the other stories that I uh, maybe are a little closer. Um, but it's it's overwhelming, even with all the tools available, even if you have some interest in it. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It is. It is a lot of work. And, um, you know, so there was this sort of the side of my family that I thought of as the fun storytelling side. And then there was my father's side, um, which, you know, as I write in the book, my dad was, um, you know, a pretty intense white supremacist, um, an intense disciplinarian. Um, you know, he would go so far as to spank me for watching Sesame Street, and he defended slavery uh, and thought that it should never have ended. So, you know, I was less excited about, um, you know, researching his side of the family, but I also felt this sort of obligation as I started looking into my ancestors to look at that side too. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, I guess the thing about um, researching a family using all these tools we have is that it can just, it can take years, you know, because one avenue might not work. And so then you think about it and come up with another possible point of entry. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of the discovering the uncomfortable truths, I mean, that uh, uh, that must have taken its toll on you as well. In addition to just the time it takes to go through it, I would imagine you'd have to give yourself some breaks to process some of that. Um, and, and to even hold on to that information isn't painful. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that kept me going with it was the awareness that whatever sort of pain I might experience around it was so much less, obviously, than than the pain that my ancestors had inflicted, you know, on, on the Black people they enslaved and 
on the indigenous people they killed or displaced. And so, um, yeah, but it it's definitely been a very long process, you know. So initially I found, you know, one um, ancestor who had enslaved people. And at this point, I've, I've found more than I can count, um, you know, which, which is a very heavy thing to hold, but also I feel a really important thing to acknowledge, you know, when we're in this moment where a lot of people want to, you know, deny the sort of continuing results of these legacies and want to stop sort of a cultural discussion around it. I think it's powerful for one, you know, for for people who have these histories to come forward and say, you know, my ancestors did this, um, even though, yeah, it's it's heavy. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think there is probably maybe that's fueling a bit of the desire to look into our ancestry and things to know the truth and to be able to say, no, this is what really was going on. And in order to break that pattern um, and to to make some positive change out there. Absolutely. um, I mean, that's what I was so interested in with your podcast, you know, that that seems to be a theme, you know, how we can how we can break. you know, patterns in some sense and, and, you know, really explore things um, in a deeper way that that allows us to show up um, in a better way in the world, it seems to me. Well, I hope that's the case. (laughs) So thank you. But uh, yes, I, uh, 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 my goodness, I mean, I, I, in tracing people back in my own family, you get the thing where it's, oh, well, back to the Mayflower. And at a certain point, you might have a kind of pride around that. And anymore, I just sort of wince. And uh, it's it's more difficult knowing everything that came out of that. And uh, I am always relieved when I find an abolitionist <laughs> yes. know, in the lineup. It's like, oh, thank goodness. Uh, I can hold on to that. Um, and there are a few of those stories, thank goodness, in, in, in the family, because there's a lot of Quakers and a lot of this. But uh, it's always very reassuring. Um, uh, to, but, but it doesn't make up for the fact that there's still atrocities. To, to have participated in the American experiment is to have uh, been involved uh, in, yeah. in, in suffering of others. And that's just how it is. Yeah, that is, that is really true. And, you know... And I definitely don't want to minimize the weight of that or the um, continuing, you know, the ways that that harm continues to reverberate, you know, more broadly and for descendants of of people that, you know, um, that my ancestors harmed. Um, And at the same time, I feel like there is a kind of, um, you know, I'm I'm not a Christian, but I grew up in a in a very um, evangelical household, and I did carry forward this idea from the Bible that the truth will set you free. Um, and I I do believe that you know unclenching around this and allowing ourselves to acknowledge it and you know think about you know what we might do in the world, advocating for reparations, acknowledging it, you know, more publicly, all of that can really free us from this sort of 
you know, sense of loyalty to or um, sort of secret shame around these kinds of histories, which, which can be toxic for the individual person, I think, in ways that we don't realize. Yes, and ways that may even affect our very uh, genetic code, yeah. uh, ways that may just uh, affect us behaviorally so that we pass that on. Uh, so all the more important to interrupt it. Um, and you do such a marvelous job of uh, checking in uh, with yourself, uh, with what's happening, with how different thing, di different discoveries as you go along with different family members makes you feel. Um, I really did uh, actually break down in tears at the end of the book. Uh, and I won't give it away, but uh, there's someone all along that uh, you start to think uh, is a kind of hero and, and to have a discovery made about that was so crushing to me. I felt for you and for the person, for myself who was tra traveling along with you, um, uh, uh, those those must have been tough moments to, to hold uh, as well, just to, to realize that maybe uh, something wasn't as you thought. Yes. So I think you're talking about my self-given namesake. My my legal name is Rebecca Newton, um, but my um, I had this great, great aunt named Maud Newton, um, and everyone always, always used both words, you know, that she was always Maud Newton. Um, but at the same time, everyone was reticent to talk about her. And so I, you know, I found a few little things over time and got my grandfather to tell a few little stories that caused me to think, oh, wow, you know, this was this um, powerful woman, you know, and this sort of, she was also, you know, kind of an eccentric family member who, like me, didn't really fit in um, comfortably with the family and their uh, expectations. And yeah, mm, I found she was a writer, and then I unfortunately found what she wrote. But I say unfortunately, and then on the other hand, you know, as I write in the book, I'm not sorry I know. And in, and in some ways, um, you know, it's it's really complicated to talk about this because I don't you know, the things she wrote were harmful. And I don't, um, I don't deny that. And I don't, um, and I would never minimize that. But at the same time, I feel, you know, in the book, as you know, I have some sort of more out there feelings around all of it. And um, yeah, and I feel like choosing her name was important in a symbolic way, nonetheless, hmm. because I did need to really sort of think about and feel about these these harmful histories and finding her writings just really sharpened that for me. Um, you know, I felt that it was meaningful that I had given myself her name, even though she wasn't the hero that I had hoped she would be. And there could be a kind of reclaiming that happens yeah. uh, and repurposing. Yeah, that's it. Well, these are powerful things to be engaged in. And when it is your identity and the name you have chosen, it's this big. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's big. Absolutely. It's a lot. It, it, it's a lot. it is a lot. And um, 
yeah, but I still, I feel, you know, I mean, it would have been really great if she had turned out to be some, someone, you know, more like what I had hoped, but, but I'm not sorry that I chose her name. Um, it, it feels significant to me, uh, in a different yes. way. Yeah. Right. Right. In a very meaningful way. That's a, that's a, well, uh, I commend you on that choice. <laughs> well, thanks. It was good. accidental, but <laughs> right. I appreciate right. that. Well, it's not accidental to keep going with it and to sure. and to to, right. to put that uh, behind it. I think is uh, it's it's powerful. Um, I wondered if you, having put it all together and stepping back, if you noticed what I noticed, which is that this kind of work that you do, which is meticulous and detail oriented and record keeping, uh, whether it's writing about taxes or uh, journalism or uh, uh, ancestry, that it's not out of line with some of the work that your family members did, whether that was farming or practicing law or even biblical sort of scholarship, that it's a lot to keep track of all those things. And it does take a certain kind of wiring in the brain. Uh, is that active for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I do write about, as you know, is how I always aligned my storytelling impulses with my mom and her mom, you know, because they were so fun and funny. And um, yeah, and then the more I worked on the book, the more I realized that the sort of day in and day out um, the word that comes to mind is grind, although that's a little more negative than I intend. But yeah, the day in and day out work. And as you say, this meticulous attention to detail and the delving into records and the writing things and crossing them out, that really comes from my father. Um, and he and I are, are estranged. Um, which is both unfortunate and necessary uh, for mm -hmm. me. Um, yeah, so to sort of recognize that, oh, you know, I really, I would not be this kind of writer, you know, if he weren't my father. And so despite all the, the really harmful things about my childhood and the difficult things around being his child, um, I do feel this spirit of gratitude toward him and his people for that, um, that part of my brain that's obsessive in that way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, it's so interesting how all these factors combine. And uh, I wondered if there was also something to place. And because, uh, I mean, is there something about being attracted to uh, Texas the South. I mean, the word hard scrabble comes to mind. And, and doesn't that require a certain kind of mm, grit <laughs> determination that would be uh, something that would be passed down, whether that's because that's what you grow up in or that's just what you're attracted to? Um, as an example, which is kind of sideways maybe, but I found that my grandmother had lived in all the places I had lived whether that was Providence or San Francisco or New York. Now, maybe there's a sort of artistic pull to those places or something, but 
then again, it takes a certain person to answer that call. So I wondered if you thought about the geography and how that influenced things, or if that's just too much of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm really um, sort of in a in a broader way and a more explicitly spiritual way. I am increasingly interested in the idea of and the experience of earth kinship and, you know, recognizing the ways in which we're not separate um, from you know, from the places where we are on the earth and, you know, our, our kin who are not human kin, you know, our animal kin and arguably maybe our plant kin, um, you know, but, you know, to get to your question more um, directly, yeah, I, I definitely identify with what I think of as that Texan spirit. And even though I grew up in Miami and I, I do, you know, I am of South Florida in a lot of ways and now of New York, having lived here for more than two decades, in some ways I view myself as more quintessentially Texan than anything. Um, and, you know, I, I hesitate to say that because I know people who actually live in Texas and have lived there all their lives would be like, honey, you're not Texan. Um, so I, <laughs> so I appreciate the limitations of my connection to it, but, um, yeah, so I, I do, I mean, definitely that farming sort of spirit and the, um, the, uh, parts of the brain that, you know, that are involved in planting. I mean, I, I have a small garden. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about the sort of similarities between writing and kind of obsessing about intending to plants. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I also have a deep history through my father's side in Mississippi. Um, and, you know, I have really done a lot of work within myself around that relationship, I still find it a very difficult place to be. Um, you know, even though one of the, the hard surprises around my research was finding that my mom's people, some of them had also enslaved Black people and also, um, of course, been involved in, you know, displacing and killing indigenous people like so many settlers and, and colonizers, um, you know, I still, it's, it just feels so connected to the Mississippi Delta to me because of my own experiences uh, in that state when I was young and my, my sort of awareness that I wasn't really Southern. I was sort of like the Yankee grandchild. So, um, but that, you know, that's, that's part of the experience too. And then just to quickly mention this other aspect of the book, which feels connected to your um, experience of, of turning up at the places where your grandmother had also been. Um, many years ago, my sibling uh, had moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. And, you know, without knowing that we were connected to this woman who was accused of being a witch there. Um, you know, and so I always felt very like weirdly connected to that place when I, when I would visit. And, um, 
Yeah. And that, so that is the sort of, you know, a practical person would call it a coincidence, you know, and <laughs> someone like me would call it a sort of uncanny, um, you know, return to, to a place um, that was important to my Puritan ancestors and where they did some harm. Right. Well, we uh, have that in common and that uh, I am also descended from a couple of the witches uh, <laughs> from the Salem uh, trials, I guess, across the state there. But um, the first uh, male, I just found out, or I may among the early men that were charged with it. Um, and then uh, Martha Carrier, who was one of the yeah. first uh, involved. She was traces down there too. Do you experience that connection as exciting or how does that land for you knowing about that? Well, not knowing anything about the rest of her life, really. I feel like at least we are on the right side of history right. Right. <laughs> on, on that particular uh, day. Uh, so I feel okay, okay about that. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, there is uh, looking through the whole history, though, and understanding some of the things, not all of it, but a lot of it, is to find people that were involved in these major moments throughout the um, American development. Uh, and that is thrilling in that these are major points in history, whether that's playing on a major league baseball team in New York in 1914, or whether that's being an abolitionist minister in St. Louis that ended up in a bad way in Texas, or, uh, you know, many different things. All these major moments, being in Philadelphia for so long, planning Atlantic City. Um, I get excited by having these attachable moments <laughs> in history and knowing that someone I'm related to was there and present for it. Um, yes, that gets a little exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so strange to me. And I, I know I talk about this in the book, but you know, how we are taught, you know, in school, well, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it while at the same time being made to feel that, um, you know, an, an interest in our own family history is a sort of embarrassing and narcissistic endeavor, um, which, you know, as you know, I, I sort of break down the ways the Enlightenment fed into that and all of that um, in the book. But, um, you know, it's it's just really sad, you know, that that our culture has this weird sort of disconnect between this sense of the importance of capital H history and then this denigration of a curiosity around how our ancestors connected to that. It's just like there's truly and very literally no more um, immediate or important connection to history than the ways that our people were involved in it. Um, so it's, it's just a very weird thing about our culture, I think. Oh, I agree. And the fact that so much of history is determined by someone's personality, someone's whim, someone's interaction with somebody in a bar room, in a, a tavern somewhere, uh, somebody's feelings getting bent out of shape. The fact that history is so small in a way in the interactions that fuel it and that we only get the kind of hits and that it's meant to be something outside of us when in fact we were participating many times actively in it. Um, it's wild. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> think about it. It's wild. Uh, 
Um, uh, well, in addition to uh, being descended from uh, potential witches, uh, we have something else in common, and I, I hope it's okay to bring this up, but um, we both have parents who uh, considered or attempted suicide. Um, and so I wondered what it was like for you to discover that about uh, your mother, right? And, and, and what that's like for you to carry now. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry um, to hear that, that, you know, for you, that, that we share that. Um, you know, it's, it's really, um, obviously, it was very painful to hear my mom's story. Um, and of course, I'm very happy that she survived. And, you know, as far as I know that, you know, that day was, was the one day um, where she, she attempted suicide sort of multiple times. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that when she told me, and I think I say this in the book, it felt like a confirmation of something I had already known. Um, and so it was, while it was absolutely um, one of the most painful things I can imagine to hear her describe that day, uh, it was also, yeah, just sort of um, an affirmation of, you know, some things within myself, my own sort of depressive tendencies, my own um, impulsive tendencies, you know, some, some strange behaviors and erratic behaviors that I had when I was younger. I, I never um, directly attempted suicide, but I, I behaved in some ways that could have um, resulted in me dying. You know, I once, more than once, tried to jump out of a speeding car um, to try to get away from someone I was dating. Um, you know, I wasn't in immediate peril, but I just, you know, it was this desire to flee really overtook me. And so I was interested in the parallels um, and the ways in which, in hindsight, my own behavior you know, I say this in the book, but it felt like a switch that got switched on. It didn't feel like any kind of rational decision I was making. Um, so I was interested in the ways that that, I mean, it, that day I heard my mom's story, I was just gutted, you know, but over time, as I thought and felt about it and, and revisited it with her, um, I, I became really interested in the parallels. Yeah. Um, well, I can just relate to a lot of what you're saying, <laughs> because uh, when my father told me it was a very, um, uh, it, it was like that switch going off. And one, you kind of, uh, for me, it was a change into a constant awareness that this could happen should things get too uh, grim or, or dark, uh, that I had a certain responsibility to be at attentive to that, um, to kind of keep them around. Um, he, he died of what I understand are natural causes. Uh, uh, that seems to be the way. And I was relieved that he didn't take his own life. But that was certainly when I got the call about that, I thought, ooh, <laughs> or, or yeah. did, did I let him down? What happened? Um, and then it's a, a check in, as you say, for yourself. What do I have that? Is that a, within me? And try to understand um, uh what's going on for me. And uh, I don't feel that way. I, I don't have that kind of darkness. But um, 
it's a check-in. <laughs> it's like, oh, could I? Uh, is that something that's going to get passed on? All of those questions are very active. Um, it, it really changes you. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, you know, and I, I would guess that you felt this way, and I felt really privileged that she felt able to tell me you know, about that. And, and when I was writing the book, you know, I didn't, um, you know, break down for her every single thing I was writing about, but I did say, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm writing this book and I don't want to reveal, um, anything that would be too painful for you. And, you know, she said, you can write whatever you want about me, just don't use my name. Um, which was a real gift, you know, I mean, I, I adore my mother and, you know, our relationship has been very complicated. And so, you know, it was, it was really, um, very generous of her. That is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I never mentioned it until he died. So I felt protective around the same way that wow. I, I didn't want to put that information out there. But um, it's it's powerful. It suggests also that um, we are defined by those things as much as we also kind of rebel against some of those things and that we wittingly, unwittingly fight against some of those impulses it has just as much of a, a factor, I think, on uh, who we are, who we, uh, what we pass on uh, to, to whoever comes next. Yeah. Um, Agreed. It's, it's so much of human history is also defined by that, too. If somebody's this way, well, I'm not going to be like that. And then <laughs> what yeah. does that then uh, And uh, sometimes produce? we end up, at least in my experience, you know, repeating um, those history. The more we sort of scrabble against them in a reactive way, the more likely we are to enact something that's equally horrible and probably similar in some way that we can't see while we're doing it. Um, you know, whereas the more we can just sit with the kind of, you know, sadness or fear or, you know, whatever anger, whatever the, the feelings may be, give them space and then allow ourselves to have some clarity around it. I think that the more likely we are to, to show up in a way that doesn't kind of just reactively repeat those patterns. Yes. Yeah. The patterns are fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do we interrupt or, or, or respond to those? Um, well, uh, you, you also talk a lot about uh, ancestor worship and honoring them. And I was so struck by that passage and that um, uh, ability to uh, conjure a lineage and then also interact with them and call those spirits in. I think as soon as any relative of mine died, they get appointed to a kind of council. Uh, <laughs> and that's who I go to first, honestly. Um, uh, despite uh, loose affiliation with the church, I still go to uh, the spirits first and want to know that they're there and honoring them and pull them in and give me advice. So I, I felt a lot of uh, similarity with uh, what you were talking about there. It's, it's so um, valuable to, to honor them and to, uh, to, to call them forth. Um, yeah. I mean, and, as you know, that was, um, that was a long process for me, you know, because of the, um, you know, my mother's, um, 
background with exorcisms and lots of religious fanaticism. And my own way of dealing with that was by becoming what I called a fervent agnostic, Um, you know, and what I eventually arrived at was, um, you know, I didn't want to write that part of the book from a sociological, anthropological, sort of detached perspective. So I just decided to see what would happen if I tried to go into it in an open-hearted way. And I found myself not being too attached to, you know, the objective or external reality, you know, whether the spirits exist or don't exist. But the idea that, you know, harm in a family line um, that's not dealt with can, you know, can be toxic for the living. And so whether or not I was actually engaging in a, in a spiritual um, sort of contact as I feel I was, or whether it's just some, you know, some psychological journey for me became unimportant. You know, what, what was important was um, that it, yeah, that it seemed to give me even more clarity around, around all of this. That's such a beautiful place to arrive at, uh, that that moment of giving over to it um, and just having it uh, be there. And, and you take away whatever it, whatever it is going to be. Um, it's really, um, that's that transcendental yeah. <laughs> moment, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, that's, uh, that's beautiful and uh, certainly a practice that uh, I try to cultivate and keep going uh, in my own life. So uh, it's, it was a wonderful example that you set forward. Um, given all of the, uh, that we've talked about, given your work there, given your relationship to the faith and this kind of practice, um, do you believe in destiny? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. I think Yes and no, uh, which is kind of my brand. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I do feel that I was in some way destined to be the person in my family who um, who reckoned with all of this in some way. You know, um, I'm not sure that it was a foregone conclusion that it would take this form. You know, I can think of um, of definitely uh, worse directions it could have gone in, and um, you know, yeah. But I, I think to some extent, I do believe that we are we are kind of on a path. You know, whether that's because of genetics or you know, because of environment or some combination of the two. Um, but I don't, I don't have a kind of sense of predestination. You know, I think that we all are, are able to make um, decisions to some extent within the confines of our, our experience and, you know, what ourselves predispose us to be. Mm-hmm. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, what do you I'll think you. about that? I'm curious. <laughs> well, I think uh, we arrive at a moment, and it's good to acknowledge that moment. And uh, whether that is preordained, it is just enough to acknowledge it and uh, 
to then make a decision to go to the next one. Yeah. Um, and informed by all the things that have come <laughs> before us and uh, with an eye towards the future. But whatever forces are, are out there, I'm glad they have made it possible for us to talk today. <laughs> I'm so glad too. I'm, yeah, I'm really happy that we got to have this conversation. Thank you. Yes. Now, will you be doing some events for the book coming up? You doing in-person things or, or um, what's that I look do, like for you? I do have a few, uh, a few things coming up. And one of them is at the Center for Fiction in June. Um, I don't have anything coming up immediately. I, I just finished sort of a flurry of, of events. So, um, so I'll be in a, in a paused state, which I'm sure my dogs will appreciate. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Well, uh, the book uh, is out now everywhere and uh, people can get it. Um, they can even borrow it, I imagine, from a library Absolutely. or something if they'd yeah. like to do that. Um, always good. Maud, I can't thank you enough. This was a terrific. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, my goodness. Thank you to Maud for her work and for that conversation. Talk to your elders, folks. <laughs> All right, talk to your uncles and aunts and great aunts and great uncles and grandparents and cousins. Make sure that stuff is labeled. That is a key part of all of this. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, it's so important to do it before it's too late. And if you take nothing else away from this conversation, uh, talk to people and make sure stuff is uh, well uh, filed away. And who knows? Maybe destiny is in our genes, or maybe we can switch things up a little bit to make it a little bit better for the next uh, generation to come along. I know that they say a baby looks like a father, uh, so the dad won't, you know, do away with it, you know, won't uh, see it as a threat. But maybe the patterns in our DNA and family trees are there so that we also don't run off into the wilds on our own with no sense of purpose or person. You know, we need to recognize that which is familiar. We need those who have come before. And if you can find a way to honor them, to keep the spirits cared for, oh, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea to me. And beyond that, I, I found it to be enormously helpful. Because sometimes you find yourself huddled up on the floor of a hotel restroom during a breakout session of a three-day wellness conference in St. Louis, and you're going to have to call on... <laughs> somebody to get you through that panic attack. And the great thing about spirits is that once you've established the connection, they'll be there for you. Usually the first to arrive. Friends, that will do it for us this week. Till next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, written, and performed by James Bewley. Season 14 artwork by M.K. Cummins. Season 14 theme features lyrics and vocals by Kylie Lotz, music by Austin Lotz, and mixing by Zach Robbins. It's never too late to give Dale a positive review while hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts. But you can also tune in to Dale's Frequency on Stitcher, Podchaser, SoundCloud, and Spotify, wherever you are. Dale's right there with you. To get in touch with mindfulness tips, positive reinforcement, or just to say hello, email Dale directly at daleradio at gmail.com. Be sure to follow him on Instagram by looking up at Dale Seaver. From our being to yours, thank you for visiting The Deep Night.